you are not in control of your first thought, but you are in control of your second, your third, your fourth. You are in control of the actions after that first thought. And that really spoke to me because, yeah, I can have this negative thought that may not be under my control, but what can I do now to make that second thought, to make that action after that thought a positive one that's not going to be feeding into that RSD, but rather feeding into that part of me that I know is this beautiful thing. Richard Branson, Michael Phelps, Justin Timberlake, James Carville. Wait a minute. Where are the women? Greta Gerwig, Lisa Ling, Audra McDonald, Simone Biles. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of industries. They all have ADHD, but you don't hear much about that now, do you? You know what else you don't hear about? Are the 43% of people with ADHD who are in excellent mental health. Why aren't we talking about them and what they're doing right? I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka, and that's exactly what we do here. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, and now the author of my new book, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm also a certified ADHD coach and the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a patented system that helps ADHD women just like you get unstuck and fall in love with their brilliant brains. Here, we embrace our too-muchness and we focus on our strengths. My guests and I credit our ADHD for some of our greatest gifts. And to those who still think they're too much, too impulsive, too scattered, too disorganized, I say no one ever made a difference by being too little. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for another episode of ADHD for Smartass Women. Before we start, I wanted to let you know some exciting news. My new book, ADHD for Smartass Women, is now available in Europe. Now, I know you can purchase it on Amazon UK, but I'd love to know where else it's available so I can plug those book retailers, especially the independent booksellers. So if you're one of the people in the know and you can send me a list of those retailers, I will absolutely plug them. What I also know is it's being translated into Polish. We just signed a contract for foreign rights and we're working on some other languages as well. And so I'll let you know as we know more. So now on to the podcast. You know my purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one. And so, of course, I am just delighted to introduce you to our guest, Priscilla Tolan. Priscilla is among the most lovely, inspiring guests that we've had on to date. I promise you that. Now, what I want to let you know is we had some audio issues. They were my audio issues, not her. And I was sick when we recorded this, so you're going to hear some differences in my voice, but let's go ahead and get started anyway. So Priscilla was born in England and with her family moved to New York City. As a young child, she was diagnosed with neurofibromatosis, NF for short. Neurofibromatosis is a neurological disorder that, like ADHD, is a spectrum. 
It can range from almost no symptoms or traits to many complications that require surgery. Up to 50% of those with NF can have ADHD or a similar learning or behavioral comorbidity. Priscilla has had over 14 surgeries since the age of six, as her NF caused her to have a physical disability. Since then, she has become an advocate for NF, being disabled and ADHD. She currently lives in Arizona with her husband, dog, two cats, fish, and snail. We're going to have to talk about that, snail. She's studying pet nutrition and working on starting her own dog treat business. Priscilla, welcome. Did I get all of that right? You did, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. It's honestly an honor to be here. I've been listening to your podcast for quite some time now, pre-diagnosis. I started listening to you, and I'm just honored to be here today. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. You have to tell us about the snail? Um, yeah, so we have one fish. We have a beta fish, and we were like, I feel like the fish is lonely, and <laughs> we didn't want to get another fish in there because we know we needed a bigger tank, so we were like, you know what? Let's just get a snail. We ended up naming it Gale. So it's we have Gale the snail. <laughs> and they live a long time. It's not like your garden variety snail. No, they live a long time. And the snail actually cleans the tank. So it'll clean all of the algae off of the, the glass for us and keep it nice and healthy in there. Can you eat than one beta? Aren't those the fighting fish? They are. Yeah, they're the fighting fish. So we can only have one in there anyways. And there are other smaller fish you can have in there, but we would need a bigger tank for that. So we were like, well, let's just go with the snail. <laughs> with Gail the snail. So Priscilla, you know, we always start all of our podcasts out because you've listened to many of them talking about the circumstances around your diagnoses. So I'd love to do that if we could. Absolutely. So I think the big one for me, honestly, was me starting to dive in a little bit deeper into my disability. Growing up, it was one of those things where I knew I had this disability, neurofibromatosis, and was going in and out of hospitals for essentially from the ages of six to 14. I was in and out of hospitals having surgeries. And I think that eventually I was, once I started doing that research, I learned that ADHD is so common with this disability. And some, some research says 40 to 50%, some say 60%. And then COVID happened. And I think that's really what got that going for me of just not only just being secluded from the rest of society during COVID, but I think a big part of it was just really trying to see who I was and figure out who I was. So I started kind of researching that neurofibromatosis, everything that comes with it. And I could definitely talk a little bit more about the neurofibromatosis. But I think it was once I was getting into really learning about my disability, who it, it made me and wanting to know everything about it. Literally, I was hyper-focusing on it before I knew that I had ADHD. And then I started learning about ADHD and what I thought growing up my entire life, that ADHD is for little boys who are hyperactive, getting in trouble in school and all of this. When I learned that all of that 
is not true. Yeah. It was a light bulb going off in my head. And I then became determined to learn more about the ADHD and get the proper diagnosis that I needed. And so obviously there's a very strong comorbidity. No suggested, hey, have you looked into ADHD? And I don't know what your symptoms are, so share some of them. But nobody mentioned it. No, they didn't. I think it was because, I mean, I'm 34. So if you think back on how it was when I was in elementary school, even in someone who doesn't have neurofibromatosis, it was very overlooked in women, in girls. So because I didn't fit that that perfect little set of symptoms and traits that a little boy has, it really wasn't something that was ever brought up. And I think a big part of it, which I can, which obviously I'll talk about later when I talk about my childhood was I loved school. And I think because I loved school, it wasn't looked into. And the fact that I did have this ability that caused mobile, like mobility issues, I didn't have that hyperactive outside. It was all internally hyperactive. Did you feel like you actually were physically hyperactive, but you struggled to get it out because of the disability? Or do you think, no, no, I would have been... So I'm I'm assuming you're more inattentive then. I'm combined. So I am combined type. um, But I do think I lean more towards the inattentive type uh-huh. And I think absolutely that if I didn't have this physical disability, that I would probably be doing gymnastics. I would be mm-hmm. running around. And like, yeah. I remember that I was, my dad let me play soccer one day, one game, and I played as the goalie and I loved it. And it was just one of those things where I think that if not having this ability, if I didn't have it, that I would absolutely be a wild child running around going crazy. Is that what you were like prior to age six? Not really. I think that I, so I was diagnosed at the age of two. So I had my diagnosis on very, very early on. I like to think about it like this. So I think the way that I was born essentially uh, really describes how I am from an early age. My parents are Brazilian and they are from Brazil When my mom was pregnant with me, she moved to England with my father where he got transferred for work. I was born in England. And then when I was about one and a half, two, we moved to New York. And at an early age, my parents noticed that there was something wrong with me. I wasn't developing mobility normally. I have an older brother, so they kind of had an idea of how it works. And they noticed that I had a a different walk or that like one of my legs looked a little different than the other one. And so they started taking me to doctors. And at first, one of the doctors they took me to told them that, oh, she has elephantitis. Mm. And my parents were freaking out. And this was the early 90s. And they went to go get a second opinion. And this is when the doctor correctly diagnosed me with a neurofibromatosis. So at the age of two, I actually started wearing a leg brace. And very similar to uh, the one that Forrest Gump has when he's running around. And so it was a full leg brace that went from the bottom of my foot up to my thigh. And from the age of two, I was already restricted physically. That was one one leg, though? One leg. And 
I had to wear the leg brace 24-7. It was one of those things where it wasn't until I was 18 that I stopped wearing a leg brace. And so I've never participated in a gym class my entire life. And I think that's really a point of struggle for me is because I remember in high school, instead of going to gym, I actually had to sit on the sidelines and write papers about sports or exercise. And it was just like, I don't want to be doing this. And I struggled. Once you knew it was ADHD and you had the benefit of this hindsight, what are some of the symptoms that you always wondered about? but now you recognize them as clearly ADHD. A big one for me was the emotional dysregulation. I struggled my entire life to not only articulate how I felt emotionally, but also how other people felt. And I always knew that my emotional reactions to certain things were not like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I grew up thinking that I had an anger issue, that I would just get really mad at anything really that wasn't something that was like pleasing to my brain. A lot of the things were specifically like certain noises would just make me irrationally angry. And just in general, not being able to deal with people in a way that I would look around and see other people being completely focus, being completely just zent out and not reacting. And meanwhile, and I think a big one for me was just at the age of 30, 31, having these tantrums and being like, this isn't normal for a neurotypical brain to just have these meltdowns where you feel like everything around you is falling apart. And a lot of like my... RSD and people pleasing was something that I didn't understand until I got that diagnosis and was able to fully comprehend why I'm reacting the way I am to things people say to me and things like that. And then also just like my poor working memories. I can't, even like with medication, I can't remember where I put anything. And so I always just blamed it. Oh, Oh, I just have a really bad memory. But there's a reason why I have that bad memory. And also the big one for me is I was diagnosed with depression, anxiety, OCD, borderline personality disorder, (laughs) perfectionism, a lot of the things that people with ADHD get diagnosed with. Okay, well, what's underneath that label that can explain Mm -hmm. pretty much all of it? Yeah, because once I got that ADHD diagnosis, a lot of my depression and anxiety... I wouldn't say they went away, Uh but I knew why I had them. Yeah. I knew why I had this constant, I was in a constant state of depression or anxiety. It wasn't because of a dopamine thing or whatever. It was because I was not able to assimilate in a world not created for me. And it was causing me that depression and anxiety that I felt every day. So it made sense. I think most people would feel like you do, right? at that time. And then not understanding the whole ADHD component. Oh, no, 100%. So talk to me about the RSD people-pleasing, because that doesn't quite square with the anger. 
So when would the RSD people pleasing happen and when would the anger happen? Um, I think the anger mostly, a lot of it happened when I wasn't able to please people. I think that because I had this inability to make everyone around me happy and fit into this perfect mold of what society believes I should be doing at that time in my life, it would definitely make me angry. And I think that I would absolutely lash out on myself, on other people for not fitting into what they think I should be doing. And like I mentioned before, a lot of it also noises triggered a lot of it for me. So like, it was definitely, I used to be a dog groomer for eight years and there were definitely a lot of noises going on around me that would trigger that anger or just like the way certain people spoke or little things that they would do would definitely make me angry. And I think overall, a lot of the anger did come mostly at, mostly about being angry at myself for feeling like I'm not who I should be rather than accepting who I am. Yeah. So when you talk about anger, are you saying that most of the time you were internalizing that anger, pointing it inward towards yourself, then it would come out in blurts? Absolutely. I think that's exactly what it is. And I mean, there's really no way to explain other than that's, I think what it was, is just a lot of it was that internalized anger coming from wanting to please people. And then if I am, someone says something to me that I don't take the right way, I then keep internalizing that anger about, oh, I am not good enough for this person. So I must, I'm not good enough for myself either. And so eventually it would come out of me lashing it out towards other people. Yeah. And the other people, was it typically people that were really close to you that love you and you know they're safe, they're not going to go away? Or could it also be, I don't know, at a coffee shop because something didn't go right? It would be at anybody, really. Uh, I am definitely guilty of having some road rage and just getting mad at the way people drive because I'm also a rule follower. And so if someone is not following the rules of the road, I get very mad at them. And I'm like, why are you doing this? Why are you driving this way? And if someone didn't do something the way that I expected them to do it, I would get mad at them too. Because I think a lot of it does come back to being internalized that I feel like I have, I set these high expectations for myself Mm -hmm. of trying to, again, be what society thinks I should be. Yeah. So I'm curious, you've said two things now that have given me pause. Rule follower, which isn't typically ADHD, and you also have a lot of hypersensitivities. Have you thought about autism since we know that autism and ADHD are comorbid as well? So I am 99% sure that I'm on the spectrum. Yeah, somewhere. And it's, again, it's one of those things where it is a spectrum. It's I listened to this other podcast, Weirds of a Feather, and they mentioned, I know, I love them. And they mentioned once that they did some research and saw that autism is more of a pie chart. So Mm -hmm. there's these different slices and you will score differently in each one. And I definitely have taken tests and stuff to see because 
it's again, like one of those things where if you don't think you have ADHD, you're not going to do any research on it. And if you think you have ADHD, you're going to keep doing that research until you're like, yes, this is me. And so I was like that with autism for a very long time. And I do have a therapist and I came to the conclusion that I am pretty sure that I am on the spectrum because of like that rule following, that difficulty with social situations and all of that. But at the same time, I don't necessarily want that diagnosis written on paper because Mm. I know that a lot of it comes with the way that our government works is I know that in some states, if you get that autism diagnosis, you need to take a driver's exam every single year or just like- Oh my, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I think that that's why I don't necessarily want that diagnosis, official diagnosis, but I think that just being able to do that research and talk about it with other people and kind of just realize that if this is something that I have, there are workarounds that I can make living in this world work for me, whether or not I have that official diagnosis. And that's okay, because as long as I'm doing something that is going to bring me success in life, so be it. Yeah. And I think the big secret, Priscilla, that, you know, I don't know how many decades it'll take to finally get there, but I think they're all connected. And we have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and we get all these labels, but it's all part of, you know, as Grace was saying, one big pie. Yeah. And it's just, I don't necessarily like to label myself as ADHD, autism. I just like to tell people I'm neurospicy. It's just, yeah. my brain is different than the average person. And I don't need to necessarily put that label on myself of, this is me. I am just this person. Instead, I like to think of it as I am neurospicy. I know my brain will never work the same way as anybody else. And that's a good thing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I mean, I love that about me now. And I just like to be able to tell people, I just want to help in any way possible. I want to be there for people, whether it's early on in their journey, in the middle, whether they've been on this journey for as long as, I mean, since like they were a little kid, I just like to be able to connect with people and be on that journey with them. And that is such a juxtaposition to me because clearly you have so much empathy. You're so kind. And yet you struggled with some of the anger stuff. However, I'm curious, did a lot of that change once you got diagnosed? So is the anger a lot less? Absolutely. I think that a lot of it changed once I did get that diagnosis. And I know I owe a lot of it to going to therapy for Mm -hmm. sure, but not necessarily because of who I was talking to, but because it allowed me to essentially talk to myself and kind of just work on, see what I need to work on and see how my behaviors not only impact those around me, but impact myself. And it's given me the ability to learn how to regulate myself the best that I can on that given day, because I know I'm not going to be perfect. And every day is going to be a little bit different. And it's just giving me this awareness that I didn't have before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to neurofibromatosis. I had not heard of it. 
prior to doing some research for this podcast. I'd like to know what it actually is from the standpoint of how it affects your day-to-day life. And is it something that gets worse over time, better over time, stays the same? Just can you talk about it a little bit more? Yeah. So neurofibromatosis is a a genetic neurological disorder. In my case, it was a genetic mutation. So no one in my family has it. I'm the only one. And it could, just like any genetic mutation, it just happens out of nowhere. And it's rare. One out of 3,000 people have neurofibromatosis. And there's three different types, but the two more common ones are NF1, which is the one that I have, and NF2. Uh, With the one that I have, so I get what's called plexiform neurofibromas, and they're they're tumors. So and they're non-cancerous tumors, and they can grow anywhere along nerves, anywhere in the body. And with NF1, it's typically more neck down where they grow. So for me, I have had multiple of these plexiforms that have been surgically removed, but I do have one that's actually inoperable because the tumor will become intertwined with important nerves. So trying to get rid of it will mean possibly losing mobility in an arm or in a leg, wherever it is. So this, if we're talking about nerves, this sounds painful. Not necessarily. It, there, it can't be painful for people. I'm very lucky that mine don't necessarily cause me pain unless there is a lot of pressure on them. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, like they'll do a little twitch thing. But overall, I think that I got very lucky because as you mentioned, it's a spectrum. I have some symptoms that some people, some person may not have, but others may have some symptoms that I don't have. And so pain-wise, I think overall, I don't suffer on a day-to-day pain-wise from the tumors. I think a lot of my pain does come from the fact that because I've had all those surgeries growing up. So I'll, I'll go back to when I was six. When I was six, I actually broke my leg for the first time. And when I was born- so Can I stop you for a second? Yeah. So with NF, is this one of the uh, what do you call it? Not side effects, but is this what happens that you easily break limbs or did you just happen to break a leg? Is that relevant? It sort of is. It's not necessarily a thing that happens, but uh, when I was born, my right leg, my tibia, which is the big bone that's in the front of your bottom leg. So mm-hmm. in your leg, for someone who doesn't really know anatomy that well, there's two bones in your bottom half of your leg. You have your tibia and your fibula. And so my tibia, which is the bigger bone, was actually bowed and had a tumor growing on it. And so when I was six, I actually, uh, it's really stupid how I broke my leg. I actually slipped in a puddle of water and broke my leg. And so the doctors decided at that point that they were like, hey, can we try something advanced and do a bone transplant on your daughter? So they ended up taking healthy bone from my left leg and put it in my right leg and actually took the tumor out so that my the bone in my leg would grow straight and healthy. Hmm. And it was a, it was a success and I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to go to 
the hospital that I went to growing up and they had this knowledge on neurofibromatosis, but sorry, I forgot where I was going with this, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was interesting. I was totally locked in. It was a story <laughs> about what happened when you were a child, but why did we care about that? Because it was I think it was how they found out. No, because you were diagnosed at two. So what happened yeah. at six then? So at six, I had when I broke my leg, and I after that, my leg never healed properly, which is why pain. I had all it those fourteen. We were talking about yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is one of those moments where like I can just go on a tangent and then I forget what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, but tangents are always fun. Yeah. So after my first surgery, the bone never healed properly. And so I had those 14 surgeries. And because of all those surgeries, and sometimes I was in a cast for six months at a time, because I would be having surgery after surgery, and they were waiting for the leg to heal because I had rods and plates and pins and screws put into my leg. My right leg actually ended up being about an inch and a half shorter than my left which then causes me back pain. And I think that's that's where my pain comes mostly is kind of just this, not side effect, but this just the repercussion of all these surgeries and one of my limbs being shorter than the other and being in this like constant back pain. And so that's where most of my pain definitely comes from. And I think the other one was the ADHD was a huge one for me of mm. just kind of making that connection that my neurofibromatosis and the ADHD are connected. And that just kind of molded me who I am today. So I suspect you've done a lot of research, um, just knowing who you are, just speaking with you for the last 30 minutes. I'm curious, when you've done research, have you been able to determine why they think there's a connection between ADHD and neurofibromatosis. Did I say it right? Yeah, I think I you did. Yeah. Uh, I, in all the research that I've done, I haven't been able to really see why, but my guess honestly has to be the fact that they're both neurological. And I mm -hmm. think that even though one is just related to the actual nerves in my body, the mm -hmm. NF, mm -hmm there's so much research always going on with the NF and it's one of the reasons why I am such an advocate for it is to get funding for research to kind of figure out more about this disorder because so little is actually known compared to a, other things. And I think that really finding out why so many people with NF do have learning disabilities, do have ADHD and other things like that is super important to really figuring out from an early age, if someone does get this NF diagnosis, what the right steps are to make sure that they're leading a healthy, productive life, no matter what. Well, and it seems like it'd be so easy to see everything through that NF lens, right? Rather than understanding there's something more. And if you have gone through, what did you say, 33 years of life? And it's taken this long for them to connect the ADHD or for you to connect the ADHD. And in what I, you know, the little research that I did on it, it sounded too like they say that, you know, NF will cause behavioral problems or people with NF have behavioral problems. Like I don't 
consider ADHD a behavioral problem, Mm -hmm. but it stands to reason that if you have this heightened nervous system, which most of us with ADHD have, probably all of us, that when you're in a situation that you feel powerless, you're relying on all these doctors, I'm sure there's all kinds of medical trauma, like it makes sense to me that the world would see a behavioral problem when it's you just trying to cope with what you've been handed, right? Yeah. That's kind of the connection that I'm making because it's how a human being who's hurting, who doesn't understand, is going to behave. Yeah. And it goes back to what you said. It's the coping mechanism that you develop, especially as a young child, of how to deal. And that could be seen as a behavioral problem, but it's just between having a physical disability and being neurodivergent, it's like this double whammy where I'm going to do what I think is the right thing, or I'm going to cope how I feel like I should cope. Mm -hmm. And some might see it as a behavioral problem. And honestly, it's not. No, Like you said, you're being who you really are instead of trying to be who everybody else wants you to be. Mm -hmm. So day to day, what does it look like in terms of, it sounds like you still struggle and you probably will for the rest of your life with back pain. There's nothing they can do. And it makes sense that, you know, if, if one, I always say this, you change one thing on your body and it leads to all kinds of other things. So, you know, they did the surgery on your leg and then your leg shortened and then now there's back problems. Like it all, it's all connected. Um, I definitely do things on a daily basis that helps with that. Mm-hmm. One of the big ones for me is I wear I wear a lift in my shoe, which helps a little bit alleviate some of that pressure on my other leg. And I think working out is a huge one for me. It's one of those things ah. where I tried in the past to adopt it into my life and failed miserably at it. But more recently, it's just been very consistent because I realized the importance, not just for me physically working out, but the importance mentally of working out and how much of an impact it truly makes to go to the gym three times a week, walk my dog every day, and just kind of get that the blood flowing throughout my entire body makes me feel good physically, but makes me also feel great mentally. Which makes you feel better physically. Like it's all a big Exactly. It's all connected. It's all connected. Right? And so this working out, and I love hearing this because I know so many of us struggle to build that into our life, but once you've been diagnosed and you understand how exercise actually makes you feel and you start paying attention to that, your brain just wants to build exercise into your life. So did all this happen after you were diagnosed with ADHD? Yes and no. I was definitely going to the gym before. Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed and exercising, and I always realized, like, this was pre-diagnosis, how good I felt going to the gym and how much of an impact it made on my life. And then once COVID happened, I actually stopped going to the gym for a few years because a lot of it was just that fear of getting COVID, especially early on when it was really bad. And then I fell out of the routine of doing that, and then life happened, and I was working a job where I was working close to 70 hours a week and just literally had no time to have a life. But over, I think back in April, I was just, I'm like, enough is enough. I need to get back to the gym. And I had my diagnosis for about a year when I started going back to the gym in April. 
And it was truly like life-changing this time when I went back because not only did I have that diagnosis, but it was just like this motivation in me to do better, to be stronger, both mentally and physically, that motivated me to keep going. And so it's just just built into my routine now. I have a new job, a new, I'm working a new career and just kind of real, a lot of what I'm doing now is focusing on who I am to better myself. I love that. And what our listeners don't know, well, they kind of do because you alluded to it, is that my wonderful podcast producer, Grace, she has a really charming podcast called Weirds of a Feather. It's what she calls it. What does she call it? ADHD adjacent, which is hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) This woman has such an incredible way with words. And she's been raving about you since she interviewed you a year ago. And she's constantly telling me, Tracy, you have to get Priscilla on. You have to get Priscilla on. She's so inspiring. Clearly, you subscribe to the School of Positive Emotions. Whatever you focus on just gets bigger. So you might as well focus, I guess, on the good stuff, right? And I'm curious, were you always like this? I'd love to hear you talk more about this. I was absolutely not like this Uh for most of my life. Like I mentioned earlier, I struggled a lot with anxiety and depression growing up and definitely had a lot of things going on in my life and liked to play the woe is me pity Mm. party for one games with myself. And a huge part of it, honestly, is I'm an open book and I'm the kind of person who I have no shame in talking about my past and who I was, the things I did, is I definitely had a a substance problem. Uh. And it started really early on for me. I I started drinking at the age of 15, (laughs) which seemed completely normal for me because, hey, all my friends are doing it. I'm just going to start drinking too. And I realized that I was constantly trying to find or do anything so that I could fit in, so that I could find just a sliver of happiness. I suffered from self-harm, an eating disorder, and all of that. Just I struggled so much growing up because I knew I was different. And it started early on in my childhood. It's just kind of like I didn't have a bunch of friends since I was a kid. I had maybe a few friends but overall, would spend a lot of my time alone playing with my stuffed animals in my room. And then once I became a teenager, there's that. Did you that. have siblings, Priscilla? Or were you an I only have, child? I have an older brother and a younger sister. Hmm. And my brother and I are pretty close. My brother also actually does have ADHD and autism. Hmm. So it's one of those things that I know that we can connect on. And... We weren't close growing up. We definitely fought a bunch because he's three years older than me. So, but once I became 15 or 16, we actually got really close and got along. And so I always looked up to him. But I think that there was also that part of me wanting to find out who I am and that struggle to fit in, to make friends, to feel like I need to belong. And so... I definitely wasn't doing the things that I should be doing in order to do that. So what are the things that you implemented that really turned things around for you? Do you have certain strategies when you feel like, oh, RSD, 
or anger. What do you do? I like to take a step back, take a deep breath, kind of just realize, and I'm not perfect. And no one's perfect. No one's ever going to be perfect. And I think giving myself that grace of knowing that and accepting that is huge. I think the, uh, I don't know, it's really hard. I, there was just huge change in me over the past few years, like especially the past year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually sober for, I've been sober for, March will be two years for me of sobriety. Congratulations. Thank you. And I'm sure I think, you feel so much better, right? I do. And I think it's just that realization of me being reliant on other things, other people, the media, or whatever it is that I was relying on those things to tell me who I should be. And having kind of, it was kind of an epiphany for me where I came to this realization that no, I don't have to do that. I think the most important thing in life is being happy with myself, being proud of myself, accepting myself. And it was really a game changer for me because it opened up so many doors for me and the acceptance of who I was is also huge because it allowed me to be gentle with myself. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a big part is giving myself the grace and being kind and gentle with myself the way that I am with everyone around me was truly life-changing for me. So you kind of feel whatever, the anger, RSD, whatever, start to creep up. You've learned how to put a pause in there. And then what are the kinds of things that you say to yourself today? Um, I typically just, I try to, ch- I used to be very mean to myself. I used to, a lot of negative self-talk. And when I catch myself on that negative self-talk, I tell myself to stop, not shut up not be quiet, not because that's still negative. It's being negative to a negative part of yourself. And I think that a big thing that I do on a daily basis now is if I am thinking negatively about myself, if I feel that RSD creeping up, I pause and I think to myself, what can I do right now? What can I do to change that thought pattern? My mother-in-law is very smart and she told me, You are not in control of your first thought, but you are in control of your second, your third, your fourth. You are in control of the actions after that first thought. And that really spoke to me because, yeah, I can have this negative thought that may not be under my control, but what can I do now? What steps can I take to make that second thought, to make that action after that thought a positive one that's not going to be feeding into that RSD? but rather feeding into that part of me that I know is this beautiful thing. I love that. I love, I've never heard that. You are not in control of your first thought, but you're in control of every thought after that. I think that's a great thing to think. And then maybe that will, you know, get you to ask yourself questions like, is that really true? You know, could it be something else that's going on? Have I ever had that thought before and it wasn't true? You know, just trying to reinforce that we are not our thoughts. So I really really love that you shared that. Okay, now I'm going to have to ask you about dog food because I know you're a pet nutritionist 
And I promised my husband I would ask you a couple questions. So okay. as we were talking about before we started, I have um, a golden doodle named Teddy, and I have a Shisu or a Shih Tzu named Mochi. And they both, especially the Shisu, have such sensitive stomachs. And so we did some research, looked at a bunch of other dog foods, and we switched her over. And we must have switched her over to four different foods. And she would get so constipated. And she was this little tiny thing. And she would run around in circles crying. And you know how Shisus are. They're really mouthy. And they're like talking to you. And I would feel so guilty. So for years, we've been making her food. When Teddy came a year ago, he came with really good food, but it was dry. And she started eating that, but then she got sick from that again. So then we put them both on people food. We make their food. And so my husband is always worried about, I don't know if there's enough vitamins. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, this is definitely a subject that I can talk about for hours and hours and hours. Um, I am studying to be a pet nutritionist, like you mentioned, and it's a two-year program. And it's one of those things where I dropped out of college three times. And so this is what I'm doing now. And I am absolutely in love with it. And so what you're doing, giving them a homemade diet is honestly the best thing you can do for a dog or even a cat. What actually got me into the nutrition is that when we got our dog, she was constantly sick. We were taking her to the vet at least once a month with stomach issues. She was eating dry food, wet food, all of that. And I started really thinking about it. And I'm just like, I realized the importance of nutrition early on. I've been vegan for what do I want to say, like almost 17 years now. Wow. And my own personal nutrition is super important to me. So why am I not paying attention to the nutrition of my animals at home? That's where the interest of becoming that animal nutritionist really started evolving. And then I was like, I want to do this. And then I kind of was just thinking about where I was in life career-wise. And I'm like, I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing. I want to be my own boss. Mm. And that's where the idea of starting this pet food or pet treat business started. But when it comes down to vitamins, it's you're right when you say that the food that you give them is super important to get them all the vitamins. What I do with my dog and more specifically is she has an issue with chicken. So we mm-hmm. avoid chicken for her. So she eats beef. But when I go to, I actually go to a local butcher and I get beef, beef liver and beef heart because the liver and the heart contain so many vitamins that aren't going to be found in plant-based foods. So a dog may not be able to digest certain omegas that come from plants because they have to convert it and their their bodies literally are not able to make that conversion. I mean, they're naturally can, carnivores, right? Dogs. No, dogs are naturally omnivores. Cats are naturally Wait, carnivores. What's the difference? It's carnivore is meat, right? Carnivore is meat only. Omnivore is meat and vegetables. And then there's herbivore, which is just vegetables. So in the wild, like a long time ago, dogs would eat vegetables and, or they would eat plants and they would eat meat? No. What did dogs in the wild eat? They ate herbivores that are eating vegetables. 
that are getting the vitamins from vegetables. Oh, okay. So that makes that's sense. When they eat their stomach content or even just the flesh of an animal that's an herbivore, you're getting those vitamins that you find in plants. So cats are strictly carnivores. They don't need any plant material in their systems. But with dogs, it's really important to also like when I started this program and started researching which vegetables have what vitamins and Mm -hmm. balancing that and balancing the phosphorus and the calcium in the diet and really just realizing that certain vitamins and enzymes are going to be only found in organ meats. So it was kind of just making that connection that I need to make sure that I'm feeding those organ meats to my dog so that she does get that vitamin E that she needs that she may not be able to get from other foods. So it sounds like add organ meats to whatever we're doing right now, and they should get plenty of vitamins. Absolutely. Can you do that with chicken? Chicken liver, right? And chicken's hearts. So we would add those because they both do well on chicken and turkey. What about veg? My husband's going to love you. What, <laughs> um, what kinds of vegetables are good dog vegetables? And should you mix it up? Absolutely mix it up for sure because it's like that old saying, too much of one thing, it's not a good thing. Okay. So giving them too much broccoli can lead to digestive issues. So I don't put broccoli in every time giving them, I mean, I do put red pepper in every time because my dog just absolutely goes what crazy for it? red peppers. For our dogs, it's, well, especially the Shisu, it is like friggin' candy. She'd rather have a red pepper oh, yeah. than a bone. It's so weird. Yeah. Kale is a great one. There's mm. so much in kale. I usually tell people to stay away from peas because peas are actually pretty hard for dogs to digest. So I usually also do like spinach every once in a while. Um, It's also not an every time thing to do spinach. It's really just that variety is important and really knowing which, which vegetables to stay away from and not putting those in, but having like two to three vegetables that you're constantly rotating in the food. Cause not only does it change up the vitamins, but you wouldn't want to eat the same thing every single day for the rest of your life. It gives them that variety. And I honestly believe that that variety brings them a lot of happiness and just... Well, it does for us. And I know yeah. that's very anthropomorphic, but yeah, like they they do not get excited if you give them like the dry kibble. Like They may be excited because it's new, but if they have to have it for the whole week, I think our dogs are just friggin' spoiled at this point. But... They should be spoiled. I think now. (laughs) Yeah, they absolutely should be spoiled. That's my point of view is that there are little babies. So let's just spoil them the best we can. Let them live the happiest life they can. And not only do they feel good, but I feel good about myself knowing that my dog is eating the healthiest thing I can give her. That's, I mean, not on the market because it's something that's made at home. Well, and I'm sorry, but dog food is so expensive. If you get, you know, not a Purina, you can batch this stuff up once a month, freeze it, right? And then Mm -hmm. use it throughout the month. So cauliflower, what about cauliflower? Like broccoli, fine in moderation. It's just because it's one of those cruciferous, it could lead to gassiness, bloating, and just like all that stuff. What else do I usually put in there? I love to throw apple in there for her. Carrots is great. Zucchini is a fantastic one. 
And even instead of like doing rice, there's always the option of doing potato as your carb in there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or pasta. And um, we do quinoa a lot or farro. Quinoa is great. All of those are great grains. Buckwheat, if there is a gluten allergy. Quinoa is great for that gluten allergy too. And um, no, there's just so many things that you can do in there to change it up. And depending on the season, sometimes I I like to like around Thanksgiving, make like a turkey type thing or make her like (laughs) chicken pot pie, not chicken, but like beef pot pie flavored food and kind of just thinking in my head, what flavors go well together? And what do I think she'll enjoy? And I think just that rotation between that rotation of a few vegetables and the organ meats and all the carbs. I mean, at least with my dog, she's never been healthier. She is also, she's three now. And a big thing is that last time we took her to the vet, he was like, her teeth are perfect. Like she does not need, she's nowhere close to needing dental work. And it's because you're not feeding her. Yeah. Yeah. That the dry food is so bad for their teeth. Why? And so she, what what does it do to their teeth? It cakes on literally like it'll just start caking on their teeth and it'll cause plaque. It'll cause gingivitis, which then untreated dental disorders can lead to heart disease oh, yeah. and all of that. So it's super it's important exactly to take care like of Exactly like with teeth. people, right? Yeah. You know, exactly. whatever, you put garbage in, you get garbage out. Yeah. It's one thing that affects everything else down the chain. And it's only now that we're starting to understand how important nutrition is, or maybe not that we understand, but that we're starting to accept it. Yeah. So... I love that. Thank you so much. My Oh, okay. There was one other question. He goes, can you actually ask her this on air? I'm like, why not? What about poop? So how do you know that they're healthy? The smaller the poop, the better. Really? Mm -hmm. That means so you think about how much they're eating and how much they are pooping out. Mm -hmm. The smaller the poop, the more nutrition they absorbed. So you want, you obviously, I mean, since we're talking about poop, you obviously want it to not be like super dry poop or you don't want to have to deal with like super loose poop. But there's a a happy medium of just a nice brown poop that's fairly small for a dog that size. Like I, once I started feeding my dog her diet, I was very shocked. At first I was worried. I'm like, why are her poops so small now? (laughs) Because before she was, she's a half pit German shepherd boxer. She's a big dog. She's 67 pounds now. And she was taking these tiny little poops. And it just, the more like I learned about the pet nutrition, I realized that the smaller the poop, the more nutrition they're actually absorbing into their systems. And what's coming out of them is just the waste. I had never thought about that. Okay, one more question, and then I'm going to let you go. How about pumpkin? My husband has this thing about adding a teaspoon of pumpkin, and it gets all over their beard. I'm like, do we need that? Pumpkin is so good for them. Pumpkin. You can also do... um, butternut squash, but it's that family of vegetables, those like squashes that have a lot of fiber in them. And the fiber is really good for the digestive system. It helps not only keep them regular, but it also just helps clean out the system. And I also put pumpkin in my dog's food. Like instead of giving it to them 
or my dog daily, I actually just mix it into their food. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, when I make the big batch of food, I'll just put a can or two of pumpkin, depending how much I made. And oh. so it's, I don't have to worry as much about it getting everywhere. Ah, okay. Great idea. Well, I've learned so much from you today. <laughs> this has been so fun, Priscilla. I want to leave with, let me think, what is the question that I want to ask you? I'm going to ask you two, actually. I lied. What do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD? I think the key to living successfully is connecting with other ADHDers, connecting with other neurodivergent people. Yeah. Before my diagnosis, I was lonely. I never felt like I could relate with anyone, had trouble connecting with people. But after my diagnosis, I made it a point to connect with others. And I'm not just saying like, make sure your friends from now on have ADHD. They have to have ADHD, but it's more than that. I think it's both on a personal and professional side, connecting to those with ADHD gives you not only insight, but makes you feel less alone for sure. I love it. Yeah. I think it's probably, probably the most important thing because when we see other people that are like us, especially ones that are really thriving, it's really inspiring because you realize that I'm no different than that person. I may have a different area of interest, but if they can do it, I can do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then do you have a number one ADHD workaround? I do. And uh, I was thinking about this, thinking about this question a lot, actually. It kept me up till like three in the morning. (laughs) And I I know that I can very easily be like, here's these hacks. Here are these tips. There's this app that can help you. But when I was thinking about it, I tried to, I am a very deep thinker and I tried to go on a deeper level. And for me, it was a mindset change. I think that was my number one workaround. I break it down into three different categories. Number one is acceptance of of accepting who I was, who I am, and who I will be, because I can't change my past, but it made me who I am today. I am accepting of my past, present, and future experiences. And by having that acceptance, I'm giving myself the grace to be who I am. And then the second one is imagination. And I think that having this imagination it allows my mind to think of the things I want to do, not of what is expected of me. And it made me realize that age and disability will not stop me from success because I can be 34 years old. I can go back to school and I can start a business. That's absolutely fine. And then I think the last one is a positive mental attitude. And the positive mental attitude often gets a bad rep because it's not everything is peaches and cream. It's more of a facing all challenges in life with an optimistic outlook. And it's not about faking happiness and smiling. I think a positive mental attitude, it gives me resilience. It gives me perseverance. It gives me courage, gratitude. It allows me to be mindful. And they all become interwoven at some point. If something bad happens... A positive mental attitude allows me to accept things and it gives me the imagination and the drive to change things. And I'll finish off with something that I heard on another podcast. It was uh, it was actually Maya Bialik's podcast and she was Love talking her. and she, 
she said something that really stood out to me. And it was, it's not yes or no. It's either yes or not now. And having that attitude has changed life for me of just being like, things aren't happening the way I want them. But that doesn't mean they're never going to. It just means that they're not going to happen right now. And even if they don't happen, maybe they weren't meant to happen because there's something better in the wings, right? That's going to happen. Exactly. Looking for that open door. Well, Priscilla, you have been an absolute delight. Where can people find you if they want to know more about you and connect, if that's okay? I would love to connect. I don't post very often on social media. I do have social media. Um, I have my Instagram, which is potato socks underscore. So <laughs> it was, it's just one of those things where like, I, I'm a weirdo and I accept it. Okay, um, so wait. Potato? It's like the food potato. So was, I love potatoes. So it's P-O-T-A-T-O-E-S-O-C-K-S because I don't know if you remember toe socks from when uh, they were here big in the 90s. I'm like, you know, let's just put those two words together. Um, So it's potato socks underscore. And then I do actually have one for my the business that I am in the process of starting. It's taken I haven't put it on the back burner, but I realized I was taking on too much at once. So I'm going to finish my finish studying and getting my certificate. And then I'm going to get that business up and running. But I do already have an Instagram for it. It's row underscore dog treats. So that's R-O underscore and then dog treats. And those are on Instagram. And then I do have a TikTok that I occasionally post to. I'll try to post something funny or like I'll post a video of my dog. And that's a vegan ADHD. Vegan ADHD. Okay. We're going to have all of these in the show notes. Thank you so much, Priscilla, for spending time with us here today. This was super fun. It was a pleasure to get to know you. It was a pleasure, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Priscilla, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. Do not forget to go order my book, ADHDforsmartwomen.com forward slash book. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smart Ass Women. Come join me. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. Join us at ADHDforsmartwomen.com, where you can find more information on my new book, ADHD for Smartass Women, and my patented Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system to help you get unstuck and fall in love with your brilliant brain. <laughs>